We're trying something new. We're trying what's called a boundary mic. It's sitting up here in the pulpit, so I don't have a headset on. Is the sound okay to you guys? Okay, good. That's good. Jesse and I have been massaging this thing for a few weeks, so. And wasn't it great to sing, My Jesus, I Love Thee? It's been a long time since I sang that song, and it's just, it's, it, it really, it's a classic Christian hymn. And we do, we love our Lord, don't we? Because he first loved us. Let me open with a word of prayer. Father, when we feel we're nearly alone in this world, you promised that you're always there. You have said, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Father, in the good times and in times of distress, we rest on that promise. It is our source of strength, just as it was for the patriarch Jacob in the ups and downs of his life. So as we look again at his story this morning, assure us of your presence and the surety of your promises. And Father, I pray that you would bless the proclaiming and the hearing of your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The golden rule is one Bible concept most people know, even if they don't know it's a Bible concept. In Luke 6, verse 31, Jesus says this, As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And from this comes our common paraphrase, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, everyone agrees this is good advice. But there's another golden rule that some think is better in our competitive world, and that is to do unto others before they do it unto you. (laughs) Now, you can choose to follow that path, but as we return to our study of the life of uh, Jacob this morning, we'll see that that path has its consequences. Today, we'll find that Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, has returned to his old tricks, attempting to cheat him once again, but he will run headlong into a older golden rule that's found in the Old Testament book of Obadiah, where God says this, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Obadiah, verse 15. So I invite you to open your Bible this morning to Genesis 30, where we will find that Jacob has decided the future for him and his family is not in the city of Haran, where he is currently living, but in Canaan, his homeland. Genesis chapter 30. Now, if you're able, I would ask you to stand as I read the opening verses Chapter 30, beginning in verse 25. 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. 
Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I've found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? May God bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Please be seated. I've titled this message, Jacob I Have Loved, because once again, the text shows us God's unchanging love for his people. Now, we've been charting the progression of the promise God made to Abraham to make him a great nation from which would come the Savior that was first promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. Now, on that occasion, in the Garden of Eden, sin entered our world. But rather than bring immediate judgment, God's grace was extended to humanity by promising a Savior who would conquer the one who had brought sin into this world and put an end to its consequences, which is death. Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Uangelion. That's a Greek for the first announcement of the gospel. And then the gospel moves through those early chapters of Genesis until it's clarified in Genesis 12 when God speaks to an unremarkable man named Abraham living in the darkness of paganism and directs him to leave his ancestral home for a new life in a foreign land called Canaan. Abraham goes, and in Canaan, God promised Abraham countless offspring, a home for them in the land in which he then stood, and to protect and prosper him so that he would be the father of a great nation that would be a blessing, Genesis 12 says, to all the families of the earth, all humanity. The result was the nation of Israel, as we know, and the blessing to all the families of the earth came true in the advent of of Jesus, the God-man who would, through his life, death, and resurrection, conquer sin and death. Jesus presently reigns in heaven as we live in the already but not yet before his kingdom is fully established. In the shadow of Christ's redemptive work, the precursor to the new covenant that Jesus brought, under which we live, is found in the promise and the covenant made to Abraham. So if we are to pin our eternal future with confidence on Jesus Christ, it's important for us to understand these events in Genesis, which is why we're going through them. Also, I put in a plug for our Sunday school where Dr. R.C. Sproul is going through these early events as well. Now, what we've learned so far is that in the ancient Near East, a promised blessing like this would normally be passed from the father to the oldest son. 
But in Genesis 12, uh, 21, 12, the Abrahamic promises unexpectedly pass to Isaac, not Ishmael, Abraham's older son. And then we're surprised again in Genesis 25:23 when the promises pass to Jacob, the younger of the twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, this countercultural passing of the blessing is intentional to show us that God alone orchestrates his plan of redemption and how he brings it about in creation. So the promise passes to Jacob by God's choice. Jacob, God says, I have loved. Now, the one big idea that I want to draw out of the text in in, in the moments ahead is that God unfailingly loves his people. Now, throughout the pages of Scripture, the central truth that emerges is that despite our failures and foibles and fading faith, God never withdraws his love from the people he has purposed to save. God allows his fallen world to challenge and to frustrate us, but he will never stop his work of molding us to reflect the likeness of his beloved son, which is why in Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, he who, brought a, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ's return. And although our progression is often uneven, maybe not yours, but I know that mine certainly is, it's often uneven, and we suffer because of our remaining sin and because of the sin of others, God allows these things for our benefit to mold and shape us, never as punishment, but as bringing us through to what humanity is intended to be. We see that in the image of Christ. So we find the strength to continue by believing God's promise, he will always love us. And we'll see this in Jacob's life described in Genesis 30 through the end of chapter 31. This is a large passage, so I've broken it into three easy-to-remember parts. First, we'll look at the plan Jacob proposes to Laban. Second, we'll discover the preview Jacob is given by God. And then third, we'll discover the providence of God to bring about Jacob's freedom and to bring Laban's philosophy of doing unto others before they do it unto you down on his head. And we've been waiting for that, haven't we? The plan, the preview, and the providence that brings it about. So we'll begin in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go unto my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Now, back in Genesis 28, God appeared to Jacob at Bethel as he was fleeing his brother Esau. And remember, that was the stairway from heaven that Jacob saw. And God reiterated his promise 
to him. He promised that he would have divine blessing and protection, the same promise he made to his grandfather Abraham. But God didn't promise a trouble-free life, and we've seen that's been Jacob's reality ever since he arrived in Haran, where he has been serving his uncle Laban. Laban offered him shelter, but Laban continually cheated him. Now it's 14 years later, and Jacob's service to Laban has brought him wives and children, but not his independence. Now, realizing there's no future with Laban, Jacob's eyes now turn back to his homeland, back to Canaan. But he needs now a measure of wealth if he's going to be independent. And he's a shepherd, so wealth is measured in flocks of sheep and goats. So Jacob's future depends on his gaining his own flocks, and he needs a plan. Now, as verse 27 says, everyone recognizes, even Laban, that his prosperity is because of Jacob. So when Jacob says to him that he wants to leave, Laban desperately attempts to keep him by offering him a job. Name your wages, he says, whatever it takes. There's no salary cap here. But Jacob doesn't want a job. He wants a new life. So he proposes a plan. Look with me at verse 32. Jacob says, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Now, one thing to notice here is how Jacob has grown in character. We've been following his life ever since he was a boy. And in the past, we've seen him as a, pa a passive victim and a cunning thief. He steals his brother Esau's birthright. Yet he passively has allowed himself to be cheated by Laban for 14 years. He passively stood by as his wives went at each other, the, 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 the two sisters going uh, hook and ladder at each other for his affections. So... All of a sudden now we see Jacob and he stands up and he shrewdly asserts himself. And you just want to say, Jacob, it's about time. Praise God. But now he comes up with this, this great plan. It's a simple plan. Give me all the speckled and spotted sheep and goats, he says. And as they breed, they will be mine, Laban. And if any flocks are solid in the color, hey, those are yours. So sheep in the ancient Near East were normally all white, and goats were either solid brown or black. So the plan he's proposing is to grow his flock with Laban's rejects. It's a simple way to check his honesty as well. The shrewd Laban, he's quick to agree because he sees a way to cheat Jacob again. After hearing the plan, verse 35, he quickly removed all the speckled animals and gave them to his sons and then separated them three days away into different pastures. And since all dark and all white sheep generally produce the same, 
you can see that Jacob is at a disadvantage from the very beginning. So in other words, Laban embraces this plan of Jacob's because he never intends to honor the deal. But look at verse 37. Let's see how Jacob responded. Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks so that he had peeled that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the water troughs where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Then Jacob separated the spots, the, the flocks, it says. The speckled and spotted were in his herd, and the solid ones were in Laban's. And in this way, the solid animals could not mate with Jacob's spotted and speckled animals and have the chance of bringing four solid-colored ones. Now, it's often thought that peeled sticks in the water that the animals are drinking and they mate before is some sort of superstition. But actually, modern genetics has confirmed that by peeling the sticks, he was exposing additional nutrients to the water. And those nutrients, genetically, have an effect on the color of the coats of the animals. Now, furthermore, Jacob understood selective breeding. Verse 41 says, Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs that they might breed among the sticks. But the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, male and female servants, camels, and donkeys. Now, the process took six years. But at the end of that time, Jacob is blessed by God with a large flock that will enable him to leave Canaan. And this brings us to our first fill-in. Our shrewd but righteous dealings in this world bring heavenly rewards. Our shrewd and righteous dealings in this world bring heavenly rewards. Does this seem odd? Well, maybe it's the word shrewd that puts you off. But that's the same word Jesus used when he told the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, perhaps you remember that parable. Um, if you do, maybe you've been puzzled over it like I have. But Jacob's actions help explain this story. In Luke 16... Jesus tells the story of a manager skimming off the top of his master's income. He's caught and fired, but before he left, he had each customer discount their bill. And for his shrewd actions, the master commended him. Then Jesus says this, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own than the people of light. If you, had not been, if you have not been responsible with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? The point is that we are to honestly and carefully steward 
the worldly wealth that God gives us. If we are wise stewards over worldly wealth, we will be entrusted, Jesus says, with true riches. True riches. This principle explains why the man who buried the talent or the mina in the parable in Luke 19, why he was punished and his mina taken away from him and given to the guy who had ten. When the people hearing that story protested, Jesus said this, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And Jacob's life story is what explains this principle, or these two confusing principles that Jesus told in these parables to us. Jesus said we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, we're to watch closely and act carefully to properly protect and wisely use the resources that God gives us in this world. And when we do, we will be rewarded in eternity. And we see this in the next verses in Jacob's life where we learn how Jacob came up with this great plan. He knew it would succeed because God had given him a preview of how it was all going to work. Chapter 31, verse 1. It tells us that the tension in Laban's clan over Jacob is reaching a climax. And Jacob begins to fear for his life. God tells him, he says, return to the land of your fathers and kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob calls Rachel and Leah together. He says, you know, I've been honorable, but your father has cheated me ten times over. But God will not allow him to continue because God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And then he tells his two wives how he knows this. Look at verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you and I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now, this text in Genesis 30 and 31 is, has a literary device called a Janus. A Janus. It's a Roman god whose face, identical faces, faced in two different directions. Now, a Janus serves to explain an earlier event with later details. In other words, in chapter 30, verses 25 through 43 are mirrored in chapter 31, verses 3 through 13 to explain the earlier event, to show us 
where Jacob's great plan came from. God told Jacob it's time to return to Canaan. So Jacob, Jacob tells Laban, I'm going to return to Canaan. And then he shows him how to gain the wealth to do so. And Jacob knows he will succeed because he trusts the promise of this God who has revealed himself to Jacob and promised to be with him. God is bringing Jacob and his family back to the promised land, just as he promised to Abraham so many years previously. And it's in the land of, of Canaan where the blessing of the Abrahamic promise will continue to move forward. So here's our second fill-in then. Patiently trusting God and knowing his love will never fail is the key to Christian perseverance. It's the key to our perseverance. How do we get on in this world? How do we have confidence in knowing that God is walking with us as we pass through all of the trials that we face almost every day? Well, the key to knowing this is that we, know, we trust that God's love will never fail. This is not just a Christian platitude, something that we say to someone who's struggling to be nice. It's a truth drawn from Scripture. Jacob's boss cheated him. His relatives accused him. And his wives, his wives were locked in vain competition. But Jacob persevered over this 20-year period by trusting in God's promises made to him. And as God has been faithful, as God had been faithful to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob knew that God would be faithful to him as well. Now, maybe you're experiencing difficult times. We all go through them. And they seem hard because they're personal. But they're really not much different than Jacob's, are they? Maybe you've been uh, cheated. Maybe you're being unjustly criticized. Maybe someone has betrayed you. Or you received a heartbreaking diagnosis, or lost a loved one, or experienced a financial setback. These and more troubles are guaranteed to us in this world. Jacob said, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. So our only source of strength is to carry on in the same way that gave Jacob the necessary perseverance, by patiently trusting in God's unfailing promise to be with you always. Have you ever noticed that the life of Jesus is bookended with this promise? In Matthew one twenty one, Joseph is told to name the baby about to be born, name him Jesus, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that a virgin shall conceive and name her son Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then at the end of his time on earth, in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus told his disciples this. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we persevere by reminding ourselves that God unfailingly loves his people. 
regardless what, of what he brings us through. He will bring us through. Now, in the remaining verses, God's providence takes center stage. Now, remember, providence is defined as God's sovereignty working in the world and human choices. In Genesis, we've seen on several occasions where freely made human choices and God's providence work together to accomplish God's ultimate ends. We've seen this many times. Now, once again, God providentially works through human actions to bring Jacob back to the land that God had promised to Abraham. Jacob's words to Leah and Rachel in verses 4 through 9 open their eyes to their, their true situation, first of all, but secondly, to the real power of the God Jacob serves. In verse 16, they say in unison, All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has told you to do, Jacob, do it. Verse 17, So Jacob arose and set his sons and wives on camels, he drove all his livestock, all of his property that he had gained, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he intended to flee. Now, Laban and his men, his sons, are three days' journey away, shearing the sheep that Laban had earlier separated from Jacob trying to cheat him. So Jacob gathers up his family and his flocks and he leaves. But unknown to him, Rachel steals Laban's household idols. Now when Laban hears Jacob is gone, he gathers his men who far outnumber Jacob and, he's, and they all set off in pursuit. And the tension builds as Laban closes in on Jacob. But then in verse 24, God intervenes. It says, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now Laban is identified as Laban the Aramean here to emphasize the fundamental difference that now exists between the people Abraham came from and the people of Abraham and what they are becoming. Do you see that? Abraham came out of that pagan environment, that moon-worshiping environment, which Laban is in. He's his relative. So Laban is called the Aramean so that the readers would understand we have been separated from that into this. It's a separation of what, where Abraham came from to what Abraham and his offspring would become. God had promised to make from him a new nation, and the original readers would have been greatly encouraged by this distinction, and we should be too. Why? Because in Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, by faith we are the sons and daughters of Abraham, and therefore we share in this promise 
even more because we are in Christ. Now, the Hebrew wording good or bad here in verse 24 is, is more properly translated as from good to bad, which Laban would understand that there was nothing he could do, no shrewd trick he could try that would turn Jacob from his appointed rounds, from good to bad. In other words, Laban could no longer say, I will give you Rachel for seven years of service and then trick him and give him Leah. Laban can't say, I'll give you whatever wages you want and then trick him by taking away all spotted goats, from good to bad. God says, Laban, it won't work. However, Laban has a lot to say to Jacob. His first words in verse 26, what have you done? And ironically, it's the same first words Jacob spoke to Laban on the morning he discovered that he had substituted Leah for Rachel. What have you done? Laban then accuses Jacob of kidnapping his daughters. That's almost laughable. Laban has sold them to Jacob twice over. Then he questions why Jacob would leave without notice. Well, that question answers itself. I left without notice because you've been tricking me for 20 years. Next, in verse 29, he claims he has the power to harm Jacob even though he has no legal right to do so and even though God has appeared to him in a dream and said, don't do that. Don't do that, Laban. And finally, Laban's sarcasm drips out of verse 30 when with a petulant face he says, and now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my idols? Now, the idea of Laban as a hurt father and a righteous avenger is just not credible. We know this guy. He's sold his daughters. He's cheated constantly. He's a very picture of dishonest greed. But this last charge of stealing the family idol ratchets up the tension in the story because it puts everything at risk that Jacob has worked for. Since only Rachel knew about the theft, Jacob vehemently denied the charge. But you have to ask, why would Rachel do this? What possessed her to do that? Well, for one thing, the original readers would have taken great delight in this story because there's humor here. The root Hebrew word used for these household idols can mean worthless, impotent, or dung. Now, maybe Rachel's Aramean roots are showing by believing that the idols were a bit of insurance if Jacob's God didn't come through. But given her confession back in verse 16, I think that the better explanation is they were made of gold and silver, so they were valuable. She basically stole from her father. But probably because it's payback, for the fact that he sold her and her sister and cheated her beloved Jacob. But whatever the motives, the tension then builds as Jacob invites Laban to search 
this tense, saying that if anyone is found guilty, they shall not live. It's pretty bold. And look at verses 31 and following. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry, but I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household goods. Now, a saddle for a camel back then was both a seat and a storage compartment. And Rachel shrewdly claims her right to privacy as she sits on the idols that are hidden in the saddle. Now, whether she was telling the truth about her condition or not, the ultimate delight for the original readers is that Laban's gods are pictured as not only dung, but defiled and rendered powerless simply by someone sitting on them. When the search fails... Then Jacob boldly vents his anger, and he builds the historical case for his actions before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide. In other words, Jacob is pleading his case of righteous honesty over this last 20 years, which everyone recognizes, before Laban's clan and before his own people. Who is the one who has acted righteously, he says? I'm the one that's been honorable these many years. He hammers Laban for his deceptive ways. He mocks his failure, and then he gives credit where credit is due, saying in verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Publicly. The story then closes with Laban being forced to make an agreement with Jacob. This is a covenant. And there's a back and forth in this, but what it did was it permanently separated Laban from Jacob, but also Laban from his daughters and his grandchildren. And as the covenant is sealed, it is clear that Jacob's God, described in verse 53 as the fear of his father Isaac, had delivered Jacob from his deceitful uncle and the idols worshipped by Laban, which interestingly are called the gods of Nahor. That was Abraham's pagan father. It shows the gods of Nahor were powerless, and the Abrahamic blessing continues to advance toward its fulfillment, which we know is in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's our final fill-in. Though the mills of God's justice grind slowly, they grind exceedingly fine. They may grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And seeing Laban get what he deserves is satisfying, but it doesn't always happen in this life, does it? 
But it will, in the end, when Jesus returns, everything will come to light and be made right by the perfect justice of God. And until then, we remain encouraged by Paul's words in Romans 8, where he writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you have been called according to God's purpose, he will make sure that all things, and in the Greek, which Paul wrote, all means all things work together for good. The story shows us that despite all the trickery and the double dealing, the cheating, and the deceiving by really everyone in the story, God's redeeming plan continued to advance by his sovereign providence. Now Jacob will return to Canaan, will continue to follow him there, and the drama will too continue as well. But we'll see that it all fits within God's plan. Because his plan is to display his glory to countless image bearers across the spiritual and the physical realms. Countless image bearers made clean from sin and released to be what God intended us to be, a bride for his son who is without spot or wrinkled and to worship and enjoy him forever. And we wait patiently and persevere knowing that God has had a plan for creation before it began. He's given us the preview of it here in Scripture, and his sovereign providence means history will reach the end that he has determined it will be and written it in his precisely determined time. That's God's plan for his creation. That's why he created for his glory to be celebrated by countless creatures. And since this is God's plan and purpose, we can be sure that God will unfailingly love his people to the glorious end. And in light of this sure reality, what other response could we possibly have than to love him back? Let's pray.